0: If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We are today going to be looking at the calling. The calling of Levi is more commonly known to you and I as Matthew. He's the author of this this particular gospel. So if you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. We're going to be looking at that text today. And as is our custom, we will read the text, and then we will pray and ask the Lord to, to speak to our hearts. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard of it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much. This Christmas season, as we are decorating our houses and putting up Christmas trees and buying gifts, Lord, I thank you so much that the greatest gift of all you gave to us in healing us and forgiving us of our sins. Father, as we look at the text this morning, I pray that we would always understand that there was one singular purpose, one singular goal, one driving motivation And I pray, Lord, that despite all of the other goals and all of the other noble pursuits in this life, that we would understand that there is one that stands above all else, knowing you and helping others to know you. I pray, Father, that you would drive that truth home into our hearts today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Why heal? Why heal? Why do good? Why give mercy? This is the nature of the question that the Pharisees are posing to Jesus when they ask him, why sit and eat and recline and have fun, have a party with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors? It's on the same level as posing a question to a doctor, why heal? Well, that's the nature of the doctor. That's the nature of what he does. That's why he became a doctor. That's why he studied medicine, because there is something in his character that drives him, that compels him to want to bestow mercy on those who are broken, on those who are sick. Let's look at the text. It says in verse 9: As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's the first verse in this passage. He finds Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he says, follow me, and Matthew gets up, and he follows him. Now, there's quite a bit of depth right here. And For those of us who Don't really give a lot of thought to the role that tax collectors pay. Uh, This is probably going to be lost on us. We, all of us in this room, hate paying taxes, but we don't necessarily have personal dealings with our CRA representative. They mostly just send us a thing in the mail at the end of the year around April. We have to fill out a return. If we're fortunate, we, you know, our returns are easy. If we're less fortunate and say we immigrated from another country, and there's all kinds of cross-balances and whatnot. There's mountains and mountains of paperwork you have to do. You hope you're on the the shorter end of the paperwork. But whether you're on the short end of the paperwork or the long end of the paperwork, you got to fill this thing out, and you got to send it back. And you don't actually interact with them unless they tell you you owe them more money, and you don't think that they do. Even then, you don't really interact with them. You dial a number, and you sit on hold for an hour, two hours, three hours. In this day and age, the way taxes were collected was the real man's way of collecting taxes. If you wanted to get the money for the government, you as a man representing the Roman Empire had to go in and you had to get that money face-to-face, man-to-man, me against him. And it was dreaded. It was a dreaded thing. You tried to avoid it at all possible costs because it was costly. There were several taxes the Roman Empire collected first tax they collected was a property tax. Basically, for the fact that you own a property, they would collect uh, anywhere from 10 to 20% of your crops. They would just own that. In addition to this, there was a poll tax. Simply by virtue of the fact that you're alive, you owe them money. So if you exist and they can find you, guess what? You owe some money. So they are going to charge you on your property. They're going to charge you on your existence. There's another tax which they can collect, which all of us pay all the time anytime we go to the store and buy something sales tax or a duty tax or an import tax. The way that they collected this tax is that they would establish booths. Usually these booths would be situated at the crossroads of major major travel routes and there would be a guy that would sit there at this booth and as you would travel, you could be headed from north to south or you could be going from east to west. In fact, Kamloops would be an ideal location for a tax collection point in British Columbia. You have Highway 5 headed north and south and you've got Trans-Canada Highway highway 1 headed east and west and so this would be an ideal location for individuals moving traffic along the roads in the province of British Columbia, this would be an ideal location for Canada Revenue if we were still doing it the way they did it in this day and age, most likely they would have a tax collection booth here sort of like a toll road and in fact, they collect taxes like this today. They can tax you on toll roads or toll bridges based on your axle, number of axles, number of wheels, or gross weight. There's any number of ways that they can assess a penalty to you. In this day and age, they didn't have anything quite that sophisticated. What they had was they had just guys that just collected the tax. And so if you're a fisherman and you're collecting fish, you're, you're fishing out of the, the Lake of Galilee here, And you want to move that fish, you want to move that cargo to another city, you come out of that lake, you come out of that boat, you load up your cart, well, there's Matthew, Levi. See, there is a tax booth. And it's entirely up to him how much you owe because there's no consistent measure. There's no set fee. The way that it worked is everybody hated tax collectors, and Rome knows this. So how do we get people to actually do the dirty business of going into homes and assessing fees and forcing people to collect money? How do we actually inspire countrymen who know their country? How do we actually get them to do our job for us and to collect these monies? When in the doing of this activity, it's fairly certain that they're going to be hated for it. Well, this is what they did. There is a minimum quota that you have to give to the Roman Empire and then anything you can collect above and beyond that, that minimum quota, you can keep it. We've got troops. We've got Roman soldiers in that province. You're allowed to rely upon them. If anyone gets a little cheeky with you and says that they don't want to pay, you're allowed to call on the troops. They're at your disposal. But you have to collect this minimum amount. You have to get it. Now, you can get any more. As much as you can get beyond that, you can keep it. But you have to give to Rome this minimum amount. Now, let's just say you had an honest tax collector. He only collected exactly what he was supposed to collect with a small surcharge to cover his own living expenses. Even then, he wouldn't have been liked. He wouldn't have been loved. You see, the Jews felt that they were God's chosen people, that they were destined to rule the world. And as a result, being under Roman oppression, they hated that. They hated the fact that the Romans were in control. And so it didn't matter if you're an honest tax broker or not. If you chose to take upon yourself this duty of collecting taxes, even if you did it fairly and equitably, it doesn't matter. Jews would look at you and they would think, you're a scoundrel. You're a dog. You're helping these pagans hold our country in subjection. We're God's chosen people. How dare you support the Roman Empire? So it didn't matter whether you were an honest tax collector, it didn't matter whether you were as filthy as a crook and you extorted people for as much as you could get, you were treated the same. And it was pretty significant how you were treated. It was pretty horrific. At least three major ways that this would have impacted Levi or Matthew, as he's referred to. For one, he would not have been welcomed to participate in civil matters in Jewish life. You see, they regarded the tax collectors as total sellouts. As a result, their character was questioned. They didn't trust anything that those men said because, by and large, they extorted people. So if there's a crime, if there's something that happens and there happens to be a tax collector sitting in a booth along a freeway who happened to observe this particular crime, they will turn to just about any other witness besides the tax collector. In fact, it's detrimental to your case if you call upon the testimony of a tax collector. That actually could shoot you in the foot from the get-go. So if anything happens, they're not looking for the testimony or the eyewitness evidence of a tax collector. He would have been excluded from all civil responsibilities. He would have been forbidden from participating in any sort of synagogue, Jewish Jewish council hearing within the local communities. They would have a, a board of elders that would help to run those communities. He wouldn't have been welcome to participate in that. But in addition to this, he would be excommunicated from the synagogue. He would have been forbidden from participating in worship on Saturdays with the rest of his people worshiping God because as far as they were concerned, he had turned his back on God by turning his back on God's people. But perhaps most significantly, and that second one is pretty, pretty stiff, perhaps most significantly, he would have been disowned by his family. If Mama Matthew goes out for coffee with some of the ladies from her knitting group, And they're sitting around talking about their children and their grandchildren and what the kids are up to. She's not going to volunteer what her son is up to, and they're not going to ask. In fact, she's going to just consider it a blessing that she's invited to that group. The way that they would reflect upon Mama Matthew is how could you raise a son to do this to his own people? What kind of a mother are you? And so she wouldn't have invited Matthew home for the holidays. There would be no celebration, no family get-togethers. As far as this son is concerned, he's forgotten. He's disowned. He's ostracized. So if you're not allowed to participate in church, if you're not allowed to hang out with your own family, if everywhere you go in your own community people look at you and they hate you and they avoid you and they won't talk to you, Who are you going to hang out with? People just like you. Other tax collectors or sinners. This is going to become your social circle because they're the only ones that will consider it okay to be seen with you. Individuals who are equally ostracized from the community. So Jesus can forgive sins, but to what extent can he forgive them? The Talmud has this interesting statement from the rabbis of the day. said, tax collector cannot be forgiven by God. It is the least likely that a tax collector will repent. Now Matthew has had his whole life, his whole career, day in and day out, of sitting at this booth, this desk, at the crossroads of a major freeway. People come, he assesses the tax, they curse him out, they pay the money, and as they're walking away they tell him you know where you can go don't you and and on they go and day in and day out he would have been subjected to the worst abuse and the worst ridicule and at the end of the day who's going to comfort him people just like him who suffer the same abuses that he suffers and the question sooner or later begins to haunt you what does god really think of me i am a sinner I have done wrong is God able to forgive Matthew Verse 9 says, as Jesus passed on from there, he's just had this encounter with the Pharisees in which he has healed a paralytic man. They obviously accuse him of blaspheming when he tells the paralytic man that his sins are forgiven. He then engages in some dialogue with them and he challenges the logic of their statement. If it is logically possible for me to heal a person, and we know that the root cause of all sickness and all suffering is sin, if I have the innate ability to cure suffering and sickness, would that also not mean that I have the innate ability to forgive sins? He calls them on it, and as He goes on from there, from that encounter, he meets Matthew. He has just asserted that he, Jesus Christ, has the ability to forgive sins. How far can he go? How bad of a person can he forgive? How deep, how dark, how twisted, how immoral of a sinner can he save? And the Scripture's answer is the very worst of the worst. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. It doesn't even matter how guilty you feel about it. Some of you in this room might even suspect, I am just such a rotten person, I cannot be forgiven. You might tell this to yourself, but it is not true. There is no person in this room that has done anything that is beyond the capacity of Jesus Christ to forgive and heal. He sees Matthew, and I believe Matthew's heart was ready for this. I believe that after a lifetime of collecting taxes, God had prepared his heart and he was ready for a change. Jesus makes the statement, it's a command, follow me. Now, he knows who Jesus is. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee for quite some time. Word about this man has gotten around. He understands what Christ is saying. He he has believed that Jesus is capable of forgiving. He's ready to make the decision. Jesus sees him, and incidentally, in his train, in his wake of people, his sort of entourage, he's going to have... Fishermen who have probably had a few choice words with this particular tax collector in the past. After all, all the other disciples, they come from, besides Judas Iscariot, they come from this region. They're fishermen by trade, and they pay taxes to this guy right here. And so he's got him and the majority of the disciples, and he says, follow me. And Matthew sees the people following Jesus. Matthew's ready to follow too. So he does. Verse 10 And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the first thing that happens, he tells Matthew, Follow me. Matthew follows him. Jesus is prepared to associate with anyone, and he is prepared to forgive anything. And there is no person in this room, no matter what you've done, that you are so far from God's grace that you cannot be saved. He can save you. Follow him. Follow him. Matthew does, and he invites all of his friends. They all come, they have a party, they sit down, and now you've got the righteous guys, the spiritual elite, the churchgoers, The guys that really feel that they're holy. And they see Jesus hanging out with Matthew, and they ask him this question. They don't ask it to him. I want you to look carefully at the text. It makes a statement in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, Jesus hanging out with sinners, they speak not to Jesus. They speak to his disciples. They speak to the other fishermen, the other guys that, though uneducated, have actually made an honest effort and an honest living and didn't turn to tax collection. They talk to these guys who have some modicum of honor, some sense of self-worth. They say, hey, got to ask you guys a question. Your teacher over here, the guy you're following, why does he hang out with sinners and tax collectors? That's the question that they're asking, and it's a good one. You'll notice back last week Jesus is challenged regarding his ability to forgive sins. They accuse him of blaspheming, and he turns the tables on them, and he says, is it logical to think what you're thinking? Is this right? If I can forgive, if I can heal sickness, is it also not logically possible that if I have the innate ability to do this, that I could also do this? Their theology tells them that, yes, the two are connected, and, yes, if he can do one, he should be capable of doing the other, and he proves it to them. So, game on. He has just challenged our fundamental beliefs. He has just shown us that he is capable of doing what he says he can do. And he did it using the Pharisees' theology and their logic. So now they have to ask another question to the disciples. Why does your teacher hang out with sinners? Why do they ask this question? It's foundational. It's absolutely foundational to what they believe. There's a graphic that I've prepared that I would like to show you this morning. Every single person in this room, we all have a knowledge chain of beliefs. When we form an idea about the world around us, we do so based on some other belief. Let me illustrate this to you. Most of us in this room know perfectly well when it is blowing wind outside. Our whole lives growing up, playing in the sandbox, we've all experienced wind blowing. We know when the wind begins to gush, when the wind begins to blow, the trees start to shake. Now, If you happen to be locked inside of a soundproof room and you were to look out your window and see the tree shaking, your natural conclusion, what you would naturally arrive at, is the fact that the wind must be blowing, and as it is blowing, that is what is causing the tree to shake. So you observe the tree shaking, you've experienced this phenomenon of wind in the past, and so as you observe the tree shaking outside your window, you conclude that as a result of wind, the tree is shaking. In other words, you have a belief, you have an idea of the world. It comes from somewhere. And as a result of that idea, you are able to form conclusions about the phenomenon around you. But let's ask a question, how do you know that the the wind is really shaking the tree? The wind may have shaken the tree in the past, but how do you really know that the wind is shaking that tree in this moment? I'm just going to throw a crazy counter possibility out there. Maybe it's some sort of demon playing tricks with your mind, and he's jumped up in that tree and he's shaking it. You can't see the demon, but he's shaking the tree limb. He's making the leaves shake, and you observe the tree shaking outside your window. In the past, you've known that this phenomenon has been associated with wind, and so you logically conclude that wind must be blowing it, but do you really know that? Do you really know that? You don't absolutely know it just by looking out the window. You come to what we refer to as a justified belief. You've had previous understanding of the world around you. Those previous understandings form a core of beliefs, which forms a foundation upon which you interpret the world around you. And as a result of those foundational beliefs, you start to make inferences and conclusions about the phenomenon that you see. You've never experienced a tree shaking before without wind. So it seems justified that if the tree is going to shake, that it must be the wind that is shaking it. All of us live this way, all of us do. We start from somewhere to get where we are today. And the scriptures bear witness to this in Romans chapter 1. Don't flip there, just listen. In Romans chapter 1, there are two statements. There's one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes the statement: What can be known about God is obvious. It's plain. It's evident. Because God has shown it to them. Now, the Apostle Paul is referring to all of humanity. And he's saying the whole world can know that there is a God. Because God has shown it to them. He has revealed it to them. He has made it evident to them. Now, you flip over to the next page in chapter 2. And Paul, again teasing out this argument, says... All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. Now, what Paul has just said is that every person has an idea of this world written on the very fabric of their soul. There are morals. There are ethics. And as C.S. Lewis in his classic work, Mere Christianity, said, if there is a moral law, it begs the question, who has given us that law? There's a foundational belief that we come to understand. And based upon that foundational belief, we form all of our other beliefs. We don't know everything with absolute certainty. There are relatively few things that we know with absolute certainty. But we have what we consider to be a justified belief in those things. The Pharisees asked the disciples this question Why does Jesus eat with sinners? And this is a legitimate question. Everything they know about God is that He is holy. All of their history, all of the revelation that they've received, Everything they know from the sacrificial system that they have to implement every year tells them that God is so holy that he cannot bear to be with sinners. Jesus says, I can forgive sins. Well, that puts them on a footing with God now, doesn't it? Jesus is hanging out with sinners. Wait a minute. We have a previous understanding of God, that he doesn't hang out with sinners. Yet this man claiming to be God is hanging out with sinners. Conclusion. He can't be God. Disciples. Why does your teacher hang out with sinners? It's a good question. It's a good question. It's one that we would have to stop and ponder ourselves. I want you to notice something really quick. The Pharisees saw this. They said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, when he heard it, he responded. Now, I want you to notice that. This is critical. All of us believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We're all trying to live our lives like the way that he lived his life. That's difficult to do sometimes because it's very clear that there are certain things that only Jesus can do in dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins. There are lots of things that Jesus did, certain miracles, feeding the 5,000, raising people from dead. There are things that are properly in the domain of God which we will never actually have the capacity to do. That said, Jesus Christ came and lived a life which we are called to follow. So, we have to always stop and ask ourselves, when Jesus does things, is he doing them out of his human nature, or is he doing them out of his divine nature? Sometimes, Jesus responds to certain situations, and the text makes it explicitly clear that he did so because he was relying upon his omniscience. That's not what this passage says. Look very carefully at verse 12. It says, when he heard it, he responded. So, get the big picture in your mind. The Pharisees go to the disciples. They question his, their teacher. The disciples hear the Pharisees, hear the obvious intent, the obvious criticism in their question. They turn around, they tell Jesus what the Pharisees just got done asking them. Jesus hears it. He hears it. The text is clear. And all three of the accounts bear witness to this. Doesn't matter whether you look at Mark, doesn't matter whether you look at Luke, doesn't matter whether you look at Matthew. It is a result of his hearing. Of what they said, that he now chooses to respond to them. Now, that ought to tell us something. Jesus is gonna defend who he is to these guys, having never been questioned by them directly. He is gonna defend the truth, he's gonna stand up for what is right, he's gonna come to his disciples' rescue, even though the Pharisees never directly asked Jesus anything. How many of us, we know there are people in our lives who are questioning things, who are asking questions, who might even be critical and criticizing of certain fundamental Christian beliefs. They don't verbalize it to us. They verbalize it to others. We hear about it through the grapevine, and we tell ourselves, well, you know, they didn't say anything to me, so... Really, should I have to go and tell them and give them an answer and a defense for the faith and the hope that is? No, it's it's gossip. Really, it's just hearsay. I, I haven't heard this from them directly. I just heard it from two or three people that they've talked to. I, I don't know for a fact that they said these things. And you know what? I don't actually have to say anything to them. That's the way a lot of people look at the world around them. The only problem is if that's how you're going to define gossip. Jesus just engaged in some sin because they didn't say anything to him directly. He heard it through multiple sources, and when he heard it, he knew that it presented a fundamental challenge to the truth, and he took it upon himself to give a defense, to give an answer. Church, hear this for a second. When people stand up for the truth, when the disciples are questioned by the Pharisees, when Jesus hears about it, He considers it his obligation to defend the truth himself. He doesn't do what most of us in this room do, where we say, oh, well, I haven't had this experience personally. I I haven't observed these things directly. I'm not aware of these things from a firsthand perspective. And so we wash our hands of it and say, oh, I don't need to talk to that person. That is not the example that Christ set for us. Now, his response is profound. It's a threefold response. He's going to rely upon logic, the simple observation of the world around them. Then he's going to quote the scriptures, and then he's going to show who it is that stands behind the scriptures, namely himself. Statement number one, he says, verse 12, when he heard it, he said, now he's talking to the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, all this world is living in sin. The fact that God has anything to do with anyone must be indicative of something profound the fact that he doesn't want this world to live in sin, that he wants to have fellowship with this world. I mean, even the Pharisees would have to acknowledge on some level that at some point in their life, they themselves lived in sin. There was a moment before they became so high and righteous and pious. And yet they think that God has something to do with them. So Jesus' response is, it's illogical. The world is broken. People are sick. And it's merciful that he considers sin a disease. We know this is a bit of an understatement. For the purposes of making a compelling argument, Jesus can refer to our willful disobedience as a disease, when we know it's way more than that. It's way more than that. But he makes this statement to them, the reason doctors exist is to heal disease. The reason God is moving among you is to save you from your sin. And so when they say, how can you hang out with sinners? His response is, number one, those who are well don't need me. Now, this is a play on words. Do the Pharisees need Jesus just like you and me? Everybody needs Jesus. And yet Jesus is saying, whoa, hey, you know what? I'm not eating dinner with you guys because you're apparently healthy. I'm going to eat dinner with the sick guys. He's choosing his company, who his friends are going to be. How many of us probably need to be a little bit more attentive to whom we choose as friends? you guys think you got it all figured out? Well, I'm going to spend some time hanging out with people who are broken, who are sick, who need help. But upon what do you base that, found, what, on what foundation do you base that decision? See, when they ask him why, they're asking him a pivotal question. To what end? For what purpose? To what ultimate goal? And he's going to quote it in scripture. I'm going to hang out with sick people because they need to be helped. I'm going to h- hang out with sinners because they need to be saved. And this is Biblical. He will reference Hosea. This is a quote from Hosea 6.6. Now look at this. He makes a statement to the Pharisees. He says, go and learn what this means. In other words, for all of your learning, for all of your academical, intellectual understanding, you think you know the Scriptures, you think you know what it means to know God, but you don't know anything. This is what you need to do. You need to go and actually learn what the Scriptures are saying. He will then quote Hosea 6.6, a passage they would have all been very familiar with. You don't have to flip there. I'm just going to read this to you. Hosea 6, chapter 6, the actual paragraph begins, the, the statement actually begins in verse 4. God makes the statement through the prophet Hosea to the nation of Israel, and he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Why? Here's the foundational statement. They're engaged in all of the religious ritual observances. They're sacrificing, they're going to the temple, they're worshiping, but here's the problem. Here's why God is not happy. Verse six, I have desired. The ESV, depending upon the Masoretic text, translates the word hesed as steadfast love. The Septuagint, the Greek translation, that's what Jesus is quoting from. In the Greek, it's mercy. I have desired mercy or steadfast love and not sacrifice. Now in the context, he's rebuking them. They're going through all the motions. They're going to church on Sundays. They're worshiping. They're tithing. They're sacrificing. They're doing all of those ritualistic things that are part of what it means to know God, but they've missed it entirely. They've missed it. I have desired love. That's what he really wants. For I have desired love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. For a nation that prides itself on biblical literacy, by not doing what the scriptures call for, Christ says you don't know God. And in context, the passage he quotes makes it very clear that in a simple knowing and not in an act of doing, you do not know God. You don't know him if all you know of him is what the scriptures say. And yet you yourself have never tried to do what the scriptures say. Go and learn what this means. I want love not ritualistic obedience. And in this passage, he's demonstrating this by coming to the disciples' defense. It makes logical sense. The scriptures teach it. And now look at this last statement. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, Notice the first word there. For the world is broken. They're sick. They need a doctor. The Bible says this is how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to love. Why does the Bible say this? Because as the author standing behind Scripture, this is why I'm come. Jesus does something very profound in this threefold statement. It makes human sense. It makes good logical sense to do what I'm doing. It is substantiated by the scriptures and the reason it is substantiated by the scriptures is because I'm the one that stands behind the book. I'm doing this as the second person of the Trinity, as God Almighty. It'd be a very curious thing for them to be like, why does your teacher do this? And he says, oh, because I want to. Unless, of course, the I want to is the I want to of God Himself. Church, I want to step back for a second and ask you a question. Do you know God? Some of us, we, we, we know there are people out there who are hurting, who are broken. We have heard through the grapevine that they're badly confused about the truth. Maybe we know people in our office who have whispered to other people in our office, and those people have whispered it to us what they're whispering. Maybe in our homes, we have relatives, loved ones, who have observed us going to church, and we know that to our other family members, they're whispering about us and our participation in church. Maybe in our schools, in our classrooms, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. We know there are people talking about this faith that we have. Undoubtedly, they don't get it because they're not here. Because if they got it, they would be here. And yet we say, well, they know. So that's as far as it needs to go. Do we justify our silence that way? Because that's not what Jesus did. He knew they were talking about him and he approached him. And he told him that this is what it means to be a true child of God. How interesting that we should look for any excuse, any possible reason, even label such things as gossip or hearsay, as a means of saying no, I don't actually need to go and talk to that person. That's not what Jesus did. Secondly, and this is more profound I think, Do we care that they're hurting? I mean, when it comes to a guy like Matthew, this world would have regarded him as the worst of the worst. Unforgivable. He's not. Jesus clearly forgives him. As we look at the people around us, do we care? Do we love? And if we don't, let's just be honest with ourselves. Why not? Why don't we? We may not have a good answer to that question, but maybe we should be hesitant to say that we know God if we don't sense some sort of a burden in our souls to be like him and to love people the way that he did. Do you know of someone who is hurting? Maybe they never talked to you directly. Maybe they never said a word to you. Do you know of someone who's really broken? Maybe they've said lots of words to you and you've just kind of put them off and said, I'll be back later. Why don't you love them and speak the truth to them? We sang a song today, put in me. You know, the longer we go in engaging in a behavior that we know is wrong, the more comfortable we will become in that behavior. The more we will grow a hardened and thick skin, the more we will become hardened in our hearts, and the less likely we are to obey. Now, when it comes to obeying, we may not necessarily want to, but we know that's what the Scriptures are asking us to do. So we say, well, if I don't feel like it, then I'm not going to do it. Well, that's... You're just saying, well, because I don't feel like honoring God, I'm going to continue in sin. I know that talking to people about Jesus is hard. I know that standing up for the truth will get you ostracized and ridiculed. This past week, I'm talking to my sparring buddy in my fencing class. I'm wanting him to come to church. I'm trying to be nice. I'm not whipping out the hell card just yet. I'm keeping that in my back pocket for a later day. I'm like, you know, you should come to church. God is great. He loves you. I'm saying all those things. Good things. You ask the question, don't you feel like there's something missing from your life? You know, doctor, diagnostic type questions. Do you feel like there's something not right? No, he doesn't. (laughs) He's happy. He's got a great job. He's making good money. He's got enough leisure money and leisure time to go and take fencing classes on the weekend. And for fun, he likes to stab me with his foil. That's great. He loves that. No, nothing's wrong with his life. There's no reason. What do you do on Sundays? Well, Saturdays are my day to have fun, and Sundays are my day to do the chores, laundry, go grocery shopping, do all that stuff as I get ready for my working week, which will begin on Monday. So Friday night, party time. Saturday, relaxation, party time. Sunday, do the chores, get ready to start your working week. He's a responsible adult, making lots of money. He's happy. He's content. Doesn't feel like there's anything wrong with his life. He doesn't know he's sick. He doesn't know he's broken. How do you help him if you don't tell him the truth? Oh, but Josh, we can't be like these Bible-thumping people that tell people they're going to help. But isn't it true? Aren't they actually? And if they're not, what did we get saved from? What's going on with us? There are people out there who are broken, and they need to be loved. There are other people out there who are so broken, they don't know they're broken. They need to be loved, which means we have to tell them that they're broken. And if we're not going to love people this way, then do we know Jesus? I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it either. There's nothing inside of me that says oh joy I want to go get made fun of today for being a Christian. You're not the first. You're not the last. And you know what? You will never be faithful as long as you operate out of that mentality. At the end of the day you know what compels me? To tell people about Jesus. And as a result to grow deeper in my knowledge of him. To grow closer in my walk with him. To become more and more like him. I hear these words Those who are well have no need of a physician. I need to help the world understand that they're broken and I need to be particularly sensitive to those who know that they are broken because that's what Jesus said. Number two, it's grounded in Scripture. It's what the book says which means it's authoritative. It's God's Word. Number three, it's His heart. Last verse, for I came, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So nobody's going to heaven until they acknowledge that they're broken and that they are sinners. We have to tell the world that they're sick. And we have to tell them that there's hope in Jesus Christ. During the Civil War there was a famous general by the name of Stonewall Jackson. He uh, was a pretty terrific field commander, but an extreme hypochondriac. He always thought he was dying of something. He's got lots of letters written to loved ones, uh, you know, I feel like this is a little out of joint. I'm suffering from this particular ailment. And yet he would sit atop his horse and ride into battles, ramrod straight with bullets whizzing past him. And you're thinking to yourself, why are you so concerned about all this other stuff when you got bullets flying past you, man? Like, pay attention, wake up. He uh, in his letters, he um, he was a real con- hypochondriac. He I- in battle, he pointedly would raise one arm to allow the blood from that arm to flow back into his body because he felt like his right arm, because he used it so much, too much blood went into his right arm, so he wanted to create more equilibrium. So he would raise his right arm up while he was riding along in a saddle in the midst of a battle to try and bring some equilibrium to himself in the saddle. That's just lunacy, but that's an actual fact of what he did. In addition to this, he um, refused to eat pepper, you know, like salt and pepper. Like, he wouldn't put any pepper on his meals because he was convinced that it made his left leg weak. And so he just swore off peppers. No, it's no good. It, it has a problem. And he actually, there, there are records of him instructing his troops. Before battle, they would have a meal, and he'd say, don't, don't eat pepper. Don't, don't do it. Like, we're going to be in battle tomorrow. You need your left leg to be as good as it can be. It's just lunacy. It's lunacy, but it's true. And he was a great general, amazing tactician, knew his craft well. He um, sucked lemons because he believed they would cure his dyspepsia, and he also believed in good posture and sitting up straight because he thought that was the healthiest way for the organs inside of him to sit on top of each other. He had all kinds of weird ideas about these sorts of things. Now, after the Battle of Chancellorville, Battle which, by the way, they did good, they won, his troops shot him just an accident you know this hardware from that day wasn't you know the most reliable and they're riding along and there was just an accidental discharge shoot one of his own troops shot him in the arm so they went to the surgeons surgeons took a look it was pretty bad he was bleeding he was going to bleed out they needed to amputate the arm which is common treatment for this back in the day so the surgeons cut his arm off and and then they performed the procedure and there was every indication that he was stable doing well and that he was going to pull through there wasn't going to be any, any long-term problems or anything like this. He had the finest surgeons that were using clean surgical instruments. There was no, no threat of gangrene or any of that sort of stuff. Surgeons left him alone, left him in the room. Now, Stonewall Jackson had this particular idea that uh, whenever he was suffering from pain, he needed to apply cold, wet towels to that wherever he was feeling pain because he felt like the cold from the towel would take away his pain. And so the doctors left. And in came his servants, his field commanders who assisted him, and they understood his peculiarities, and they covered him with cold, wet cloths. Three days later, Stonewall Jackson would die as a result of catching pneumonia. He had lost blood during the procedure to remove his arm, and as a result, his core temperature had dropped significantly from the blood loss, the surgeons, had they known, they would have told his attendants not to dress him with cold, wet cloths. He wasn't killed by enemy fire. He wasn't killed in the field of battle. He died of his own hypochondria, which proves the old, age-old adage that a doctor who treats himself has a fool for a patient. Church, listen to me. Don't let the world diagnose themselves and think that they figured out their need. There's nothing loving in that. If Stonewall Jackson's surgeons had known what his attendants were doing, they would have stopped it and saved his life. That's what we need to do as well. Let's bow for a word of prayer.